Just in time for Halloween, the Ohio Attorney General is talking about werewolves in a conversation about the governor. Very weird. It's one of the things we'll be talking about on the episode we're about to begin of this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We do not have Laura Johnston today. She's taking a few well-earned days off, but Chris Wernowski and Jane Cahoon are here with me, Chris Quinn, to discuss the news of this week. How are you guys? Pretty good. Doing okay. Jane is salivating over some time off next week. (laughs) (laughs) If it ever gets here. (laughs) If it ever gets here. Okay, let's begin. What's so ridiculous about a state legislator's attempt to lock up Ohio Governor Mike DeWine that it has Attorney General Dave Yost talking about werewolves? This is the weirdest news year we'll ever live through. We actually have official communications of the Ohio Attorney General talking about werewolves. Jane, go ahead. Let's get <laughs> and into this one. we love him for it. We just love him for it. This is uh, all a result of our favorite ultra-conservative lawmaker from Southwest Ohio, State Representative John Becker. He's at it again. He's the one who introduced impeachment articles against Governor Mike DeWine in the legislature. And then he tried to bolster that effort by by swearing out a criminal complaint against DeWine in, in a local court, all because he thinks the governor's coronavirus actions intended to protect Ohioans went too far. He wants to charge him with all these dastardly crimes like conspiracy, terrorism, bribery, interfering with civil rights, all all sorts of crimes. And um, this stems from DeWine, you know, closing businesses, his stay-at-home order, the postponement of the primary election, and of course, the face mask mandate. Which which, which he did to save all of our lives. We should yeah. just point out the motive there <laughs> was saving our lives. But let's let's move on. So anyway, Becker's attempt in the local court was knocked down like within hours when, when the local prosecutor took a look at it and said, you know, policy disagreements belong in the legislature, not in the criminal courts. So he's not given up, you know, even though both of these attempts have gone nowhere. So now he's gone to the appeals court to try to order DeWine's arrest. He claims that citizens have been chanting, lock him up, and that DeWine, you know, just hasn't gotten the message here. So he's seeking a writ of mandamus because he said the local prosecutor didn't give his criminal complaint a a proper review. And um, predictably, most most people are not taking this seriously. And and our ever witty Attorney General Dave Yost uh, put out a tweet yesterday that everybody got a major kick out of. It said, if the affidavit had said the governor turned into a werewolf at midnight and knocked over a liquor store, it should be dismissed on its face. Uh, Representative Becker's affidavit is equally absurd and warrants no expenditure of law enforcement resources. And then just to top it off, this was this was really fun. A uh, contributing cartoonist for the Cincinnati Inquirer, Kevin Necessary, he, he didn't take him long. He he put out a cartoon on Twitter imagining DeWine as a werewolf. So he's pictured, you know, with the pointy ears and fangs and like busting out of a ripped up shirt, clutching a, a gun and a <laughs> bag of money outside DeWine's pony keg liquor store. So, so you know, this was just, you know, an element of fun for our day on, on Wednesday. It's an element of fun, but, but at the heart of it, it's like mental illness, right? I mean, this, this is, this is, this is just stupid. If this were in a movie, you would say this is just not credible, right? Unless it was, you know, set in dystopian times. I mean, for, for an elected guy, 
to be pursuing this. Should, there should be some sort of mental health test that gets you kicked off the legislature, right? I mean, we got uh, Natalie doing nonsense. This is just dumb. I mean, you can't. The governor is doing his job and this guy's trying to get him locked up. For, where's bribery? I mean, where does he come up with a bribery? Yeah, I, what is I, that? <laughs> well, terrorism? I mean, I mean is, he, is he talking about first energy? I don't know. Like, <laughs> is it, just, you know, there, there are a handful of lawmakers like this at the state level and many more at the House of Representatives level on the federal side of things. You know, we have our Jim Jordans and our Matt Gateses and our and our people who who are seemingly just elected to be full-time gaslighters who troll the American public and do things like this for publicity. Like, I don't know that there is any seriousness behind this effort to have Mike DeWine arrested outside of, of making it something that we talk about. And it's, it's ridiculous, but it is very much red meat for that base of people who want to see, you know, I mean, it, God forbid somebody like this, you know, take this time and effort into, I don't know, legislating on behalf of their constituents. And <laughs> maybe and, repealing HB six, huh? Yeah. Right. I mean, there's I mean, look, there's there's any number of things that are much more important uh for the people of this state that we could be focusing on right now. <laughs> Instead we're talking about werewolves and trying to arrest the governor who did nothing short of save probably thousands of lives. And yet you have people who are still angry that they had to put a little piece of cloth of, over their mouths and who are pretending like their civil liberties are being trampled on like they're an ethnic minority pre-1960. So, but that you know, is the give point. me a break. It, this does. It's ha-ha. It's a joke. And we're talking about it. But it is a sign of something more serious that this is a waste of official time. God, if I if I had cast a vote for this guy, I'd be ashamed of myself because, you know, he's a circus clown that's purporting to be a legislator that is wasting time on nonsense instead of all of the important issues, some of which you just talked about. And that's why it's worth addressing, because given this year and the serious issues we all face, this is just stupid. Yeah. I, I go through a cycle where I'm like, I saw this tweet like right after we finished recording the podcast yesterday and I read it to you guys and we all laughed and it's funny. And then, and then you think about it and you go, Oh God, this is so stupid. What a waste of time. I would argue that Becker is a true, like he truly believes in what he's doing that yes, he did seek publicity, but it's not just a stunt. It, like he's a true believer in this, which maybe makes it all the more scary. Yeah, that's worse. He shouldn't be in office. People that do nonsense like this on the official, as part of their official duties, they just shouldn't have the job. This is this is really, really dumb. I mean, Dave Yost's tweet portrayed it in all of its actual absurdity, which yeah. which was why I like the tweet. This is absurd. And yet it's an official act of a legislator and lock him up. I mean, it's all that. that. I know. But I, but I think that I think what we've seen, the people who get under like, you know, a good example would be the president, like the people who get under the president's skin the most aren't the people who engage the more ridiculous things that he says in serious debate. The people who get under his skin are the people who dismiss what he says outright and treat it like clownish nonsense. And I think in that sense, Yost is doing the right thing, which yeah. is, is is not treating it, not 
pulling it up and elevating it to a level of serious debate over whether these statutes apply to what Mike DeWine did. They don't. And and another aside, you know, I think legislature legislators in the state have really good health insurance, which does cover therapy. So (laughs) there there is another way to sort of deal with your problems and it's go get help. And we, we hope that he does. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When is the last time Cleveland had as deadly a pace as it is having this year with the number of homicides? Chris Ranaski, I, I, I hate to say it, but back in the 90s, I was a crime reporter when the numbers came down from their, their highs uh, in 96, 97, and 98. I think it got down below 100 while I was a crime reporter after having some serious highs during the crack years in the city. And we've generally done okay since then. We've had some outlier years, but, but we haven't had the rash of homicides. This year is very different. What are we seeing? So as of, as of yesterday, Cleveland matched its homicide total from 2019 with two daytime killings that happened Tuesday. And that puts the city on pace for one of the deadliest years it's had in decades. Um, We've already had 133 homicides this year in the city. um, And that's tied for the third highest number of homicides in a single year since 1994. The city had 144 homicides in 2016 and 141 in 1994. So we're on pace to have a pretty deadly year here in the city. Um, The number of young people being killed is also on the rise. 10 children under the age of 18 have died in homicides this year, matching last year's total. And 47 people were under the age of 25, already seven more than 2019. So we haven't seen, you know, Khalid Samad, who is, um, you know, the founder of Peace in the Hood, which is a violence intervention program here you know, said that this is something that we haven't seen in a very, very long time. And and he's right, but we're not alone in this. I, you know, we're talking about gun violence has become sort of a fixture of the governor's. Occasionally, he talks about this at his coronavirus briefings. And so, you know, other cities in the state are also dealing with this. It's becoming an issue around the country. But But killings are the thing that are really on the rise. Most other crime is still this wasn't an Adam story, but this is sort of just a, a known thing that most most other violent crimes are not on the rise. It's just homicides, which doesn't make it any less troubling. It's it's just you know. Then we try to sort of get down into why is this happening? Well, and right, like, and if and, about- well, and I and if you look history, it's funny you're bringing up Khalid Samad because back mm-hmm. when I was writing about the drop in homicides, I was talking to Khalid Samad right. twenty four years ago. You know, in the crack years, you could very easily determine what was causing it. People were battling over street corners. There were lots of drive-by shootings because there was so much money to be made. And then, you know, crack burned itself out because it was such a devastating drug. And I, I'm having a hard time understanding the cause this time. It's Is it the economy is bad? Is it the pressure of the coronavirus? Is there just a sense of despair in the most poverty-stricken people in Cleveland that, that life has no value? Can you blame it all on just the proliferation of guns because of all the things the legislature has done in Ohio to make it easy for anybody just about to get a gun? This is the thing that we do every time we talk about homicides is like, why? And it's it's not an easy thing to answer. And and some of the answers are things that people either don't want to hear or choose to believe are realities. You know, it's it's poverty. It's systemic racism. It's it's all of those things. You add a, a pandemic, unemployment, 
low wages. You know, the fact that we do, we, you know, we've spent billions of dollars on a drug war and we, you know, that's not over. You know, we still have drug issues in this state. We still have, we're still in an opioid crisis, which we, we tend to forget about because the pandemic yeah, is so much far, further reaching. But and that's not causing gun No, but, but, you know, I mean, the drug trade has not gone away. But also we do have an astounding amount of guns in our communities now. And that doesn't happen by accident. You know, those guns don't start out as illegal guns. Those guns are purchased legally somewhere and then somehow end up in the streets. You know, we've talked about this time and time again, that the Supreme Court and the state legislature here has has hamstrung cities like Cleveland from trying to address the gun issue on their own, saying that state law supersedes any local ordinance about about managing the issue of guns. And DeWine, when he talks about this at his at his press conferences, we always talk about punishment. We talk about punishment. Well, we have been punishing people and putting people in jail for violence and crime, you know, since the beginning of the drug war. And it really hasn't done much of anything, you know. Well, I'm going to push back on that. There is science to show that there is a small number of people that commit the gun violence and that if you take one of them off the street, you can reduce ensuing gun crime. So, so, I mean, if you walk up to a undercover police officer sitting in a car and blow him away along with the person in the car with him, you're going to get taken off the street and you can't criticize police and prosecutors for taking people off the street who were blowing people away. It's not, that's not appropriate. So I, I'm not, no, I'm not buying that argument. I'm not saying the cause of this, this is, if I take a gun, aim it at you and pull the trigger, I, that, that I'm a serious criminal who should be punished there. I mean, I'm not denying that. I mean, that is that is true. But what I'm saying is, is that there has, you know, our answer to the gun problem has always been, well, just increase the penalties for it. And plucking people who kill people off the streets has has not really I mean, we still have murder problems in cities. People don't stop killing people. And so the punishment doesn't really get to the why part, which is right. why people kill people. And, right. and you know, and, and that is the sort of go-to reflexive legislative idea to deal with it, which is... Yeah, we're not, we're not dealing with poverty. We're not dealing with despair. We're not dealing with the lack of opportunity that a lot of people have right. so and that's, that they devalue human life. Right. That's I, what I, Khalid was talking about in, in this story when he said, I think it was him that said that we need a, a more holistic approach to dealing with this. What's and, sad, though, is Khalid, who is one of the heroes of Cleveland, he's been out fighting the fight for decades. He's been saying that for since I got to town and we haven't changed. I mean, it's got to be one of the most frustrating things for him because he really has fought the good fight. I mean, he's one of, I mean, I've, he's one of the people in Cleveland that I've always been glad is here. Okay. We got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. It feels like day 143 of the Cuyahoga County ballot drop-off box saga. And it probably is right, Jane. So (laughs) just about, (laughs) so it continued again yesterday. Did us district judge Dan Polster, correct his mistake Wednesday and bring clarity to whether it will be easier for us to vote in this election. The confusion reigns. We should, I don't think we need to go through it all again. He misinterpreted something Frank LaRose wrote to think that we could set up ballot collection boxes all through the county. Frank LaRose didn't mean it that way, has said, Cuyahoga County, you can't do that. So what happens? Because he dismissed the case. The case is dead, even though he got it completely wrong. <laughs> what happens now? 
So to answer your question, no, he did not uh, provide that clarity on Wednesday. But as we predicted, there were a couple of other small developments here. A state attorney told Cuyahoga County it could not move forward with this plan to, to station ballot collection officials at public libraries like the county wanted to do. That state attorney made it clear that that's that's, you know, what Secretary of State Frank LaRose meant by by his directive. Meanwhile, very late in the day, last night, in fact, the voting rights groups that, that originally filed this suit challenging LaRose's limit of one drop box per county only at the Board of Elections, they filed a motion with District U.S. District Judge Dan Polster asking him to reopen the case, and, and they cited precedents that allow a judge to to do that in the event of a substantive mistake of law or fact in the final judgment or order. So as you said, you know, he had dismissed their case. So now they're kind of stuck because LaRose is sticking by his directive. So this is their their recourse. So we'll have to see if the judge agrees to reopen this, revisit this. And meanwhile, confusion still reigns. Well, and, and if he won't, I mean, he made such a bonehead move. I would think you could go to an appellate court and say, hey, this judge is a bozo. He he completely misunderstood what was going on and unfairly dropped the case without making a determination. And so, I mean, it's kind of incumbent on him to step up here and say, oops, OK, I, I misread it. So here's what I want to happen. Or I misread it, but I'm OK with it and I'm still dismissing the case. But. I mean, it's it's kind of rare. I don't know that we see it often where where judges just misread it. This is all, you know, partly LaRose's fault because he wrote such a confusing memo. Like we pointed out, we misinterpreted it at first because it was so confusing. So, all right, well, we'll be talking about this again tomorrow. It's this week in the CLE. What has the contact tracing by Cleveland's public health department determined about the 11 people connected to the presidential debate here who tested positive for the coronavirus in the days before the debate? Chris Ranaski, we've been curious about whether this is a super spreader event from the campus of the Cleveland Clinic, which hosted the debate. Uh, Those 11 people who were part of the setup could have been part of that. What is the health department found as they've interviewed the people who were tested positive. Okay. So Evan McDonald found yesterday that the health department has not identified any more coronavirus infections while conducting the contact tracing on those 11 positive cases that were linked to the presidential debate last week. None of those 11 people who tested positive for the virus in the run-up to the September 29th debate received credentials or access to the debate hall. So there is some good news in that they weren't sort of in there mingling around with, you know, all of the the VIPs who got into the building. Most of the positive tests from the event itself that we're sort of hearing about now from, you know, the president to, you know, the people within his campaign were out-of-state visitors. Debate protocols required them to be tested in advance at the clinic's W.O. Walker Center and quarantine until they learned their test results. And so right now, as as of today, they have not found anybody that those 11 people who have come into contact with that they've spread it to. So, So that is some good news, I guess. Okay, that's that is. I mean, we we were curious to find out, and that's uh, that's a positive sign. So maybe it wasn't a super well, and, spreader event. And I and I think it's I think where you're sort of seeing the super spreading part of it is that you know there was that 
whole press conference in the Rose Garden a couple of days before the debate where they announced the new Supreme Court nominee. You know, I think there's 34 people out of that so far who have been diagnosed with the coronavirus. So that appears to be the sort of ground zero of this sort of spread through the White House and through, you know, some lawmakers. So it's a we'll learn more about this, I'm sure, as the week continues. Yes, every day. It's this week in the CLE. What's the latest aftershock in the $60 million bribery case that resulted in racketeering charges against former House Speaker Larry Householder for his work to provide a $1.3 billion bailout to First Energy? Jane Cahoon, this story just continues to grow and grow and grow. And as much as I think the legislators believe this will go away without them having to repeal this stinky thing, that's not going to happen because we keep learning more and we keep <laughs> not asking if you questions. have anything to do with it. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> so the latest is that a Republican former candidate who ran for the state legislature and was a target of some of Larry Householder's dark money has filed a one million dollar civil lawsuit against Householder, First Energy, and others involved in this House Bill Six bribery scandal claiming that, you know, Householder used this dark money to run defamatory ads against him when he was running. As we know, the accusations in this criminal complaint say that Householder had this dark money group that that he used, that First Energy funded, and that he used to put his favored candidates uh, into office and make sure House Bill 6 got passed and, and wasn't overturned. This guy's name is Bobby Mitchell. He's a suburban Columbus pastor. He's the one who filed the suit. He actually filed it earlier, but after Householder was arrested, uh, you know, he's amended his his complaint. He he says that um, this Householder allied group called the Growth and Opportunity Pack used this money to run negative ads against him. And they sent out mailers accusing him of having a history of debt and fraud and having a shady past that included state liens for failure to to pay child support. Anyway, the guy lost the the primary, not surprisingly. And uh, so he says he was exposed to public and political shame and disgrace and his character and reputation suffered and his political standing uh, was adversely affected. And all of this happened, he said, because he refused to sell his soul to Larry Householder. You know, we kind of lose sight of this at times when we're talking about these amounts of money. But if you think about how much money $60 million is and how much you can do, how much damage you can do if you set out with sinister purposes. I mean, think about it. All of the residual effect. It's not just getting First Energy. It's sweetheart deals, which, you know, were worth a lot of money. It's $1.3 billion for the nuclear plants. And then you know, how many more hundreds of millions or billions of dollars do they get because of de- decoupling and the guaranteed rate of return on their their wires and infrastructure? But it's this kind of thing. You know, if I have $60 million to direct to do do my bidding, how many people can I damage? I mean, the the, the scope of this just continues to grow. You know, we had the, the Red China stuff to to scare people about the uh, effort to repeal this. We had the shakedowns of people that were gathering signatures. And it's just, that's a war chest that I don't know that any politician has ever had in Ohio to do bad things. 
Yeah, I mean, they've said they think it's the largest bribery scheme ever in state government. What I would love to do, and we won't be able to do this until more stuff comes out, I would love to dissect where every one of those $60 million went and how many tentacles this had that undid the the public good, that that got in the way of the public purpose of government. And only by highlighting that kind of thing do we remind people of how important it is not to elect bums like Larry Householder and all these other bozos that went in and never had... Who is still in office. This, by the way, <laughs> yeah, but they never had Ohioans at the forefront of what they were doing. It was all about themselves and the power and influence. And that's that's really important, especially as we head to an election day. We need people that do this for the right reason. So eventually, you know, maybe we'll put reporter John Kenigley on that. He's he's a hound dog that usually can track it all down. Where did all those 60 million dollars go <laughs> it's this week in the CLE? If the Cleveland Museum of Art has free admission, which it does, why has the coronavirus harmed its finances so much that it is laying off and furloughing staff to avoid a $6 million plus deficit? Chris Renowski, early on, I thought we heard that the art museum was in good shape. They get their money from membership and from endowments, I guess some gift shop sales. So it's a bit of a surprise to hear that they're facing a $6 million deficit. Right. I think a lot of the, you know, the donations and memberships and and stuff, you know, go down when things like the coronavirus happen because, you know, people are cinching up their their belts and watching their finances a little more. But nevertheless, they, you know, the museum announced Tuesday that it plans to help avoid like a $6.2 million deficit this year by generating roughly $4 million in new revenue and reducing its staff by 24 employees through furloughs and layoffs. Um, William Griswold, who is the director of the art museum said that in addition to the involuntary staff cuts, some 40 full and part-time workers voluntarily left in exchange for continued benefits and enhanced severance. The museum had to refill positions that were open through the voluntary departures Um, But the net staff reduction uh, amounts to about 10 percent of their 500 member staff that was in place when the year started. You know, it's it's interesting. They have some some fundraising efforts that are going on. Um, They have one generous family that is matching some donations and, you know, that could raise them another one and a quarter million dollars. And the museum also kind of got the go ahead from the Association of Art Museum Directors to sell some of its art, which is as Steve Litt pointed out in his story, is something that is is generally frowned upon unless you're using the revenue from those art sales to buy other art or buy additional art. But, you know, what this means is, is you know, this this art might leave the, the sort of museum circuit and end up in the hands of private people who have the money to be buying art in the middle of a pandemic. Wow. So, so, so they, they do intend to sell some art to help them reach their goal. So it's tough. You know, I, when you look at cultural institutions like art museums, or you look at other art places like music venues and stuff like that, the, the fact that we did not get a, a stimulus bill is going to be devastating to cultural places. Like the, when you think of like the grog shop and, you know, the Agora and all those places, all, you know, all of these things that make Cleveland like a really cool city to live in, I think, you know, are, are really hurting right now. So if, if you can support your local museums and, and make sure that, you know, when we come out on the other side of this thing, that, that we still have these great things here. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Going to have to leave it there. Chris is on. Laura's not. We went long. (laughs) (laughs) No. We love you, Chris. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news. 